I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine's Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Paul McHugh. He is University Distinguished Service Professor in the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where he served as Director of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and was Psychiatrist-in-Chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital from 1975 to 2001. He began his training at Harvard Medical School, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Since then, he taught at Cornell, the University of Oregon, and since 1975 at Johns Hopkins. Among other major contributions to the medical field, he was the co-creator of the Mini Mental Status Examination, one of the most widely used tests of cognitive function. And I might add a test that I've used in my own training and practice as well. Uh, Dr. McHugh has written for the American Scholar, Commentary Magazine, Public Discourse, and The New Atlantis, among others, and is the author of multiple books. Dr. McHugh, thanks very much for taking the time today. Glad to be here. Great. So I wanted to start by asking you about the field of psychiatry in general and psychiatry's purpose, because you've written a lot about that in the past. So for, for instance, in an essay for the American Scholar, you wrote, I am often aware that I am drawing students back from trendy thought, redirecting them from salvationist aspirations toward the traditional concerns of psychiatry, which is about the differentiation, understanding, and treatment of the mentally ill. And then in an essay, again for the American Scholar, a couple of years later, you, you wrote, for any particular patient, all sources of trouble, losses, burdens, illness, temperament, habitual attitudes, or simply fears that the future may replay the past must be explored and verified by the therapist, preferably before therapy is launched, but definitely as it proceeds and new facts come to light. It seems to me the burden on the psychiatrist is large and delicate. What is the role of the psychiatrist in treating patients? What is psychiatry's place in medicine? Yes. Well, those are very basic questions that many people ask as medical students, and uh, uh, that I answer uh, very simply that uh, psychiatry is a, uh, an autonomous specialty of medicine, okay? And so, therefore, it works on the principles of medicine. It just works in the domain that is a little unusual uh, or a little abstract, perhaps, for us who begin our training in organic chemistry and in anatomy. On the other hand, the domain of consciousness, which is the study of human consciousness and its phenomena, uh, is a realm in which disorders appear and for which uh, doctors are called to care. And uh, I'm very anxious to make people appreciate that uh, that domain is a worthy domain of study. And uh, although it takes from the disciplines around it, both scientific and clinical, it is itself a source of new ideas, of special uh, treatments, and uh, of connections between causes and outcomes, just like other, anything else in medicine. And so therefore, it should uh, hold itself to those principles that are the principles of a medical discipline. For example, there are really only four of them. Uh, if you think about what you expect of any specialty, is first of all, it has to be uh, realistic in the sense that it re rests upon things that other people can see as well. 
rather than imaginary things that only this only the uh, specialists or only the elect can see. We're against that, obviously, because we're doctors. Secondly, it has to be um, comprehensive. It has to cover the waterfront, just like pediatrics or neurology or something. So psychiatry has to see itself as comprehensive to all the disorders that turn up in, uh, on, in consciousness and, and its effects on behavior. So it's interested in everything from Alzheimer's disease to zoophilia. Okay. Thirdly, it has to be open in the sense that open to new discoveries and new um, ideas uh, uh, and new contributions from the uh, disciplines that surround it. But it doesn't rest upon it. It doesn't wait for them to do it because it has its own issues that it brings to them. And finally, it has to be um, what you might call generative. It has to be bringing new ideas to life and also passing on its traditions to the next generation. So it has to be generative. And I think we can show that in psychiatry. It does require that uh, uh, in contrast to uh, simply working with the body that you be able to study the domain of consciousness here, which requires a, a communication between you and the patient for the most part to do, to do that and uh, to find within uh, both the area of consciousness and uh, its expression and behavior, uh, what it's, what, what the connections are and, and to see the phenomena. So for example, uh, whereas a neurologist would say, as you know, um, stand up, let's see you walk. The psychiatrist asks, why are you walking there? Where are you going? Why do you wanna go there? <laughs> and what makes you think that's important? So those are, those are two interesting questions about the same, about the same issue of human capacity to walk. Neurologists want to know, can you walk? Psychiatrists want to know where you're going. Is that an answer? Absolutely. Okay. And it, that actually is perfectly leads into the next question, because I think uh, in medicine, and maybe it was, I don't think it was unique to my own medical school experience, but I get the sense that this is, this kind of percolates throughout the profession. That we tend to think about mental illness apart from other pathologies. So one can see the infected appendix after removing it. One can visualize the large brain bleed on the CAT scan. Yes. Uh, and as a neurologist, you can see if there's a you know, disorder with someone's gait. But it, yes. it's so much harder, I think, for, for some trainees to see major depressive disorder because you can't see it on a, on a scan or a lab. Right. And, this, and this may have something to do with an implicit sense maybe of, of mind-body dualism in modern medicine. I don't know. Um, yes, well, sometimes it does, but sometimes it's uh, simply a fact of them not knowing exactly what the domain of, um, the, the, uh, what the realm of mental life is that they're looking for. For example, I told you that psychiatrists are interested in Alzheimer's disease. After all, Alzheimer's was a psychiatrist. Well, you can find brain images of Alzheimer's disease, and you can certainly see the pathology of Alzheimer's disease at the, at the autopsy table. That's the, the argument becomes, does it belong with psychiatrists? Let me tell you, not only does it belong with psychiatrists, it's been with psychiatrists, because they're the one that care for them from beginning to end. The neurologist, it's mostly diagnosis and adiosis, you know. 
so in relationship to the diseases of brain, which produce disorders of consciousness, delirium, aphasia, uh, dementia, there's no question that you can see tangible physical features there are, uh, if not uh, if not anatomic, uh, functional, like the abnormal EEG in uh, delirium. Uh, the fact is that psychiatrists, of course, because they're working in mental life and being, mental life being what it is, uh, have other issues that uh, relate to the mental life itself from the, the things that, that uh, 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 the brain evolve, evokes, but which have a life of their own, uh, such as uh, a person's uh, response to life circumstances, my life uh, history, uh, my life trauma, my fright the things that frighten me. Uh, would you really think that the best place to look for someone being frightened, for explanation for that would be to look in the brain or to look at what's happening to him and what's around him. And uh, uh, I, I wrote a whole book after all entitled The Perspectives of Psychiatry with the idea of getting people to understand that these domains of, well, it's, it, it, the, the book is written with the idea that uh, psychiatrists use four different methods to make sense of the various forms of trouble a patient comes to in the office, but they uh, ultimately represent aspects of, uh, of consciousness itself and the kind of thing that uh, the brain evokes. It evokes intrinsic factors like consciousness or language or memory, but it also evokes the capacity to respond uh, to the world's around it and to build a personal history. So anyway, so when I listen to the medical students, I say that I understand the problem, but it's the problem of consciousness. And we do not, we know that consciousness depends upon the brain and we know that it uh, comes from the brain, but we don't know how, uh, but we know that it relates and uh, we can study that product uh, for itself. and. Uh, often find treatments that work for them related to the nature of the problem. Uh, so uh, I hear this a lot, but it, it, usually, it usually gets settled early on uh, in this kind of conversation. And then it gets really settled when I take them in and show them patients. And, and by the way, I also can give the history after all. Uh, so often really right back, uh, certainly most of the early part of my uh, chairmanship at Hopkins, the idea that schizophrenia was a brain disease was argued ferociously against us by uh, Thomas Saas and people like that. Thomas Saas said, you know, schizophrenia is like slavery. <laughs> no, no. So that the idea that we held quite a while ago that schizophrenia demonstrated uh, in consciousness the effects of a brain disease being proved out. So that's, that's an example of the openness of the field it went, went forward and Thomas Saz was refuted. Right. And you, uh, Dr. McHugh, you, you trained as a neurologist as well. Is that, is that yes, right? Yes, I did. Well, that was because of the times. I don't think you need to do that now. But remember, when I emerged as a medical student, I emerged at the time of uh, the dominance of psychoanalysis and Freud. And uh, at the Harvard Medical School, that was uh, the direction that anybody was interested in human uh, thought and behavior, uh, was told to go. And I'm heading in that direction until I hit 
my internship at the Brigham. Uh, but uh, uh, the chief of medicine there at the Brigham, who was looked after his interns in their careers to come, uh, said, uh, you know, I think it's a mistake to go this way right now. Says that, and he, he used the expression, they, they know nothing about the brain. What he meant was, he did realize what he meant. <laughs> oh, maybe he did. He was a wonderful guy. What he meant is that, listen, there must be some portions or some kinds of the disorders that the psychiatrists are seeing in their office that relate to things in the body and brain and come from there, are generated by there. Even though I'd agree with you that uh, some of them may well come out of the life story of the patient. And the doctors in psychiatry now are neglecting that completely uh, in this uh, domain. He didn't go so far as to say this romantic domain, depending upon and believing in the foundations of our ideas in dream life, you know, which was became apparent after a while. Uh, so he said to me, I, I think you should study the brain a bit longer and uh, uh, I uh, can help you get into a good neurology program. And uh, I went to the Mass General where I studied with Ray Adams uh, and Ray Adams and Morris Victor were both very interested in psychological matters. They, you know, did most of the magic major work on uh, on uh, alcoholism and alcoholistic uh, neurological disorders. And yeah, I, was, I, was, I was only on the neurology floors for a few weeks and the scales fell from my eyes. I, I could see that, gosh, this is exactly what, uh, what uh, George Thon had in mind. And, and, and although I'm, I'm hacking a path here, it's uh, much more fun to do than getting indoctrinated in a particular uh, romantic school of thought. That's how it, that's how it all came about, but that's how I, uh, and you know, for many years, uh, I really wondered whether I was always gonna go back to neurology and, and I did for, you know, six or seven years after my training in both psychiatry and neurology, go into the neurology department at Cornell with Fred Plum, had a wonderful time. And met, you know, probably America's greatest neurologist of all, you know, people like Jerry Posner, kinds of wonderful people. And I thought, well, you know, I love this psychiatry that I'm teaching and beginning to, but it was, you know, I, I finally um, was offered the position of clinical director at the Westchester Division in New York Hospital and uh, uh, gathered together some wonderful people there, both in the research and laboratory. And because the thing that George Thorne didn't know <laughs> and didn't realize and eventually came is that not only were the psychiatrists, did they know nothing about the brain or were not interested in studying the brain, they weren't interested in studying behavior either, behavior itself and the science of behavior that was emerging just at that time. And uh, that, was, that was an illuminating thing. And I got to know that with wonderful people at Cornell. Like. So the, the issue, I, just from reading everything you've written about this, the issue with psychoanalysis at the time was that it was concerned with conflicts that induced patients' behavior or mental illness, that it wasn't concerned with necessarily the patient, him or herself. Is that right? That, that's what I thought anyway. I thought they weren't looking at the phenomena first, but that they were looking at a way of explaining whatever anyone said. And uh, they, 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 had, and they became weirder and weirder in the kinds of things they could imagine. And I thought it broke with the fundamental rule of medicine of realism. I think that's probably what happened to me in medicine when I went uh, into neurology 
uh, I realized I was, I was, you know, I finished a medical internship, but with neurology, you really hit realism, solid. You, you're, you're hard at it. And that's when uh, ideas that are imaginary strike you as uh, very foreign. So uh, um, neurology gave me a, a, a true appear, uh, experience and appreciation of realism as fundamental to medicine. And uh, then I, I thought we could carry that up into mental life itself, but uh, that the psychoanalysts were not. They were, they were looking at whatever a patient said, and they would try to immediately interpret it as something that was in fact a disguised version of a real conflict. I mean, that's, that's the way the Freudian psychoanalysts anyway looked at dream life and therefore at conscious life. That in other words, it was always a mask for something else. Right. And uh, their job, their brilliance, they thought, was to be like Sherlock Holmes, uh, seeing what was missing. Right. And there was no there was no empirical way to kind of prove that this was the case. It was all very kind of pie in the sky. We can come up with these elaborate stories. (laughs) I wish it were high in the sky because it got low in the gutter most of the time. (laughs) That's the thing that really surprised you, Alma. These these ideas often were very sexual in the crudest kind. I thought, as I said, in one way, they reminded me of my uh, more teenage years in the gut with my gutter snipe friends in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where I grew up. <laughs> wonderful people, but wonderful friends, but <laughs> but very amusing in the uh, in, in the <laughs> in the gutter snipe uh, similarities or analogies they could draw. I didn't need that at the Harvard Medical School, but I found it there. Yeah, uh, I, and this has been a theme, I think, throughout your career, pushing back against what you called psychiatric misadventures. Yes. Um, and and you said, I think, it, um, in an essay that you wrote that the discipline of psychiatry has been captive of the culture. Uh, and one of the most ex- glaring examples and one, I think, uh, in which you were essentially involved um, were the, the memory wars during the 1980s and, and 90s. Can you describe a bit about what happened during that time and, and why it was such a dangerous time for psychiatry and, and for psychiatric patients? It was. It came as a surprise to me. Now, by the way, you say to me, I'm involved in these uh, 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 psychiatric misadventures. I don't intend. I didn't intend to go out there and be a warrior. Of you know, sometimes I do feel almost like Don Quixote. I'm maybe I might be fighting against windmills. But uh, you know, that wasn't my aim. It was these things come at me. I mean, people. You don't get to be Henry Phipps professor without people asking you about certain things, and uh, you 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 you're supposed to answer, you know. And um, that's how I got into these things. Let me see if I can answer your question in this way. By several families who said we've lost touch with our children, our young, not adolescent at that time, but young adult children were making claims about us that are uh, unusual, uh, not not unusual, amazing that uh, we have abused them or had sexually abused them when they were children. And um, uh, what can you what can you do about that? Well, I, you know, at first, you, the first question you would ask was, "Well, did you?" 
Yeah. Oh, no. It, that was nothing like that ever happened or anything of that sort. And I went to see the psychiatrists who were making these claims. And I asked them for the evidence for that. And they would say, psychological evidence. And I said, well, this is, this is, a, this is a physical claim. And, uh, and uh, it's a crime, you know. And, uh, and I began to realize that what had happened was that this was an interpretation of the same kind that I was just mentioning before, an interpretation of uh, some aspects of the patient's presentation that um, the psychiatrists and psychotherapists had uh, essentially conceived of on their own. And I, I, I began battling, asking, not that it could, is it inconceivable somebody could have abused his children, but uh, whether people are being charged without evidence and the, the, or that the evidence is a psychiatric imagination that I'd confronted before with, with uh, standard orthodox psychoanalysis. And, uh, you know, it, it was a long fight. And um, it, was a, it was a very un unpleasant one uh, because, once again, personal charges, you uh, uh, presumed yourself to be defenders of, of abusers, and maybe you were an abuser yourself. I mean, it's the usual thing when you permit the romantic imagination to draw up connections that um, seem to them to explain the presentation breaking into that story and saying, I'm looking for realism, I'm looking for evidence. And uh, if you don't have evidence, you should be very careful what you say. Ultimately, uh, the charges were refuted in many cases. The patients themselves were better understood for what the therapeutic program they underwent did. We went, and unfortunately, as in many of these situations, it was the courts of law that put an end to this rather than the profession itself and its, and its uh, arbiters and leaders. And uh, so it, it, was, it, was a, it was a craze. So what it was, it was a real craze that uh, took over the field. And uh, uh, as, a, as a result, um, people became frightened of psychotherapy, people who needed psychotherapy. People, again, failed to understand in what way psychotherapy worked, and uh, much damage was done personally to families, but very much, much damage was done to the reputation of the profession and to the therapeutic needs, in my opinion, of many other patients. Okay. Yeah, it, I wrote a book on the subject if anyone's interested. Yes, try to remember, which, which is I a try great to remember is the yes. name of the book. Yes, <laughs> try to remember. It was. It was uh, you know, it was an invention. Like all praises, it's coming back a little now. You, 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 you begin to hear. Well, you know, that person. We're not sure that he was right. No, but that's what happens with crazes. They go back under the swamp, and uh, after about twenty-five years, they poke their head up to see if anybody remembers the arguments that put them in the swamp in the first place. Yeah, it. it uh, you know, reading that book, it. It was. Uh kind of horrifying some of the stories because it was it was as if I mean that was as if it was these um, therapists who were taking advantage of their position of authority um, scientific authority in a way and um, you know you had written that 
where there is the present smoke of mental illness, there must be at least past fire of mishandling and probably mistreatment that distorted the natural course of the patient's psychological development. And that was sort of the craze that, well, if a patient has anxiety or has bulimia or anorexia, there must be abuse somewhere. And, and right. this idea was sort of fed to patients as if it right, right. must be true. Right, right. Uh, you, you have to realize uh, that these were true believers though on the uh, side of uh, the champions, of the champions, they, they were true believers. They weren't bad people in the sense uh, that they were malicious or satanic or anything of that sort, although it was a satanic uh, creed that they were promoting. They really believed that they were doing something, you know, good. And it took a lot. Right. Got, and by the way, I don't think any of them ever apologized. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Some of them are still persuaded of it, you know. They just shifted over to say, well, you, know, you don't understand trauma. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and as a young physician, um, reading stories like this one and, and thinking about modern controversies surrounding medical or public health decision making, whether it's gender transitioning, the memory wars, COVID uh, policies, everything seems to be heavily influenced by the political moment. Uh, it's almost as if the scientific debate, and there's always a scientific debate that needs to happen about these kinds of things is secondary or even tertiary to some of the decisions being made. Uh, and the part partisan political wins have an outsized influence on the doctor patient relationship or the medical systems relationship with society as a whole. And it reminds me of that quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes that you've used. Um, Holmes was the uh, 19th century professor of anatomy at Harvard Medical School. And, and yeah. the quote is, the, the truth is that medicine professedly founded on observation is as sensitive to outside influences, political, religious, philosophical, imaginative, as is the barometer to the changes of atmospheric density, which is a, a wonderful quote. And I think- It is a wonderful <laughs> quote, it's <a> wonderful. <laughs> sums everything up so well. I, you know, how, how do you think about politics in relation to medical practice and medical decision-making? Where does one begin yes. and end? And I mean, because we all as physicians have our own political opinions uh, and course. ideas. Yes, well, uh, uh, I think the politics, the great thing about the Oliver Holmes, uh, uh, Wendell Holmes quote is that he includes everything, uh, I think, politics, religions, uh, um, uh, ethics, uh, and the world. and. Uh, uh, to science, uh, this isn't different than it was when he was describing it. Um, and um, it's just very intense right now. Right now, every, but uh, right now, everything is, uh, is political, you know, uh, boy. But uh, remember, it's very important to remember that this happens all the time. The eugenics issue, uh, the euthanasia issue, uh, those were very political and public. And they came out of, let's take the eugenics things, it comes out of misguided uh, ideas about disease and uh, genetics and uh, Darwinism, okay? Which are ideas uh, uh, separate from medicine and the like, but uh, it was applied and, um, and uh, applied uh, ferociously, right? To the point where um, the idea of understanding an individual uh, as a, uh, you know, having his own freedom and dignity uh, 
the individual became contingent on whatever the world thought was important at that time. It was the race or the humankind, and uh, ultimately it led to um, uh, the uh, uh, organizations of a totalitarian government beginning to think that uh, uh, that these eugenics matters and the products of the genetic problem should be eliminated. It was the first step towards the Holocaust, of course. It really discovered and began employing in Nazi Germany, Zyklon Z, B for the first time. You know all that story. But uh, uh, medicine is very tend tended to do that and uh, be taken up because medicine and uh, doctors uh, have life and death matters in their hands and life and death matters become important uh, for all kinds of reasons uh, uh, to a society. And uh, they begin to uh, uh, not only uh, think about it, but uh, begin to control the expression of the treatments that the doctors will be encouraged to give. And uh, I believe that uh, medicine, uh, again, is an autonomous discipline. It has its own uh, sort of commitment to the patients and uh, that come out of and are expressed in things like the Hippocratic Oath or Maimonides Oath or things of that sort, ones that speak to the, uh, the, the inherent freedom and dignity of the individual, the things that, you know, the proposition that Abraham Lincoln said our country was based on and which uh, the Enlightenment gave, gave right to, uh, but uh, that's, that's always under, under a contingent uh, under a, under threat, and uh, medicine is the place where I believe it has to be defended at the le, right 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 at the level of the bedside, and encouraged to, uh, for doctors to say no, um, we we are here uh, as advocates and benefit uh, and people who wish to benefit the patient, and we need to defend that. Uh, I, I have to say that uh, I'm sure that. Uh, uh, None of us are free from the influence of the world that we grew up in, and uh, I, I don't make any claims not to be uh, uh, to be free completely from that. But on the other hand, I I, I believe that the great thing about the uh, medical education, uh, even the arduous boot camp of the of the internship, that at least it used to be a boot camp, uh, did uh, shape you into a kind of warrior for patients that uh, looked out for them and uh, uh, looked out for them physically, but in the case of psychiatrists began to look out for them in the realm of mind. Yes. And I, I, you brought up the idea of euthanasia, life and death. Uh, and this segues into you know, the topic of physician-assisted suicide, which you've written about. Uh, yes. in, in a piece for commentary in particular, you explained um, quote, in any case, and here is the lie, the real philosophy espoused by Kevorkian is a doctrine not of rights, but of feelings. For in dismissing the role of the physician as a provider of reasoned guidance, as one who helps a patient differentiate good from bad, right from wrong, responsible decisions from impulses, Kevorkian privileges instead the momentary inclinations of the patient who is most often in extremis. Can you sure. uh, um, expand a bit on this? Where does the physician-assisted suicide movement go wrong? Oh, it, go, well, it goes wrong. It's radically wrong. 
Um, it goes wrong by thinking that the benefit of the patient, uh, which is supposed to be the physician's aim, uh, the patient would be better off dead than alive. Now, we are limited creatures. Our lives are limited and our capacities are limited. But uh, thinking of diseases and illnesses as entities themselves that uh, you, although they will win, you must betray yourself to them is, uh, in my opinion, to give up the role that the physician is supposed to play. Now, what do I mean by all of that? I am a very great champion. I'm not a champion of, of, of forever life, okay? I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, life can go on forever anyway, and uh, that the doctors are here just to preserve it at all costs and never have to surrender. But I do think they don't have to betray anybody. There's a big difference between those things. And um, um, I'm a great committer committed to the uh, Cecily Saunders uh, palliative care, hospice care for the terminally ill, believing with her that uh, the last days don't have to be lost days. I mean, the whole advantage of some of what we've gotten, we've had with uh, uh, the advance of pain treatment kit, that uh, you can really keep uh, a true uh, uh, consciousness right up to the end and helpful for people. And you can demonstrate uh, what, they have. And now the, the responsibility of doctors, uh, again, is to discover ways of solving the problem, not of, not of life eternal, but of how life ends. That's the problem. And uh, once you decide that you don't have to think about that because you're going to uh, end the person's life whenever they ask you to, uh, and that becomes their problem, then you, you've, you've, turned over your role of what you know and what you can do uh, to somebody who does not know and who's come to you originally for help. Since you're the only one who can be the executioner, they come to you and then you act like that. Well, uh, all of that is to take a role that ultimately will, will reduce your capacity yourself to be a free person and uh, to do what you, you like to do and you believe will ultimately be the best for the patient. Patients come to, to me because of what I know and how I've appreciated them. I am not a technician, okay? I am not simply a person who has some tools, okay? I am a person who understands life and life under altered circumstances, which is diseases of, uh, and disorders of all sorts. And I can help them I can help patients, I believe, uh, manage life without uh, life in under uh, altered circumstances in ways that will benefit them, even as they and I play out a losing hand uh, without it being uh, ugly and without dignity and all of that. I'm, I'm, I'm always amused by the, as you know, the death with dignity business of the Kevork and everything. Listen, medicine is not dignified. <laughs> it's true. You know? It definitely is not. No, I don't go not. to my doctor, <laughs> my doctor, uh, expecting that I'm going to have a dignified experience. I, I believe I'm going to have quite an interesting experience and often come away 
smarter than I was when I went in. But um, <laughs> I'm often going to be probed and prouded in places that surprise me. It is this idea that uh, the most troublesome thing to me, uh, people have given up the idea that, uh, oh, not given up the idea, thinking about what it means to say, um, behold, that these, uh, you know, we have certain inherent rights, not, you know, not rights that we're simply claiming, or not rights that we're going to aspire to, but rights that were given to us at conception. So, you know, uh, I, I'm very anxious to let people know the positive side of that and what can happen. Now, again, we get back into the politics of this. The politics right now, right now, of course, is um, very opposed to this. It, 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 again, puts the patient, the person, uh, makes more of the person as a contingent person, depending upon what his race is or what his color is or things of this sort. This, this is antipathetic to uh, certainly the doctor's office, okay? And uh, it should be, but it is, it's a strong political, political movement right now uh, in which, uh, you know, uh, the issue of uh, unity and diversity, which was our plan, is now very much in challenge. And I see that, and I see it in the doctor's office. All of us have inherent, and one of the rights is the right to life. I want to show them that that right is a, a wonderful one to, and to spell it out as, well, as long as it can be last, as long as it can last, and it is a limited period. Somebody like me, age 90, knows how limited it is. <laughs> anyway, is that an answer to that question? Yes, yeah. <laughs> long and roundabout one, uh, but uh, uh, both the politics and the issue of, uh, of uh, 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 euthanasia. Uh, and now, uh, I, it's amazing to me now how far the impulse to euthanasia is extended, whereas back it used to be when it was first started and was first claimed in places like Kevorkian or even the state of Oregon, where I watched with dismay, um, it was, you know, people who could be really be sure that they were terminal, although Kevorkian didn't worry about that much. Um, now it's, uh, if you have a distressful life, you know, even if you're young and uh, you just feel depressed. And ultimately, it is to say, uh, not only can you choose to live or die whenever you want, you can expect the profession of medicine is going to acknowledge that choice and help you with it. No, we're going to try to persuade you not to do that and to see that as a misdirection and do our best to help you find your way through it. No. Okay. It strikes me that this um, movement also, uh, I guess, in addition to kind of the things that you enumerated, that this movement would really harm or destroy the doctor-patient relationship. Oh, absolutely, yes. And we've known that for a long, we've realized that for a long time, that uh, when stocks has become executioners, then the relationship are, is are capable of being executioned. That's why it's in the Hippocratic Oath that, uh, you know, I come for the benefit of the patient. I will not, I will not offer uh, uh, a poison to him because it's not, not only is it not a benefit to the patient, it's not a benefit to the doctor-patient relationship and the, th the theme of what it is. 
And because uh, that, that's a vital, that's the vital element of our opportunity of being doctors. You know, I, I, you know, I, I think you feel that way so often with patients. You, you feel very protective of them, but you also feel very honored because, you know, they're, they're taking you into their homes. They're expecting you to treat them and to be with them uh, in the way that reflects a professional responsibility and to bring the best for them. Uh, it's a kind of love relationship, a love, not erotic love, but the love of wishing well, to wishing somebody well and uh, uh, wishing to be the messenger or the advocate or the provider of wellness to them. Wellness in this case, perhaps not eternal life and certainly not going to be eternal life, but the, um, but, uh, the wellness of uh, understanding wisdom and uh, the benefits of modern medicines and what, they, what can be done. But, you know, again, I come in, as you come in as a doctor, and the soul of the issue is I bring my wisdom to you along with these various wonderful instruments and tools that uh, uh, contemporary science and medical experience and medical uh, evidence shows to benefit you. And it's, it's and in psychiatry more than any other discipline uh, from the time I began back in the late 50s, early 60s to now, we're, you know, we're very much more powerfully equipped to help people, including terminal people. Yes. And that leads actually into something that I was thinking about as I was reading some of your essays. Um, I, I spoke very with- Very good, by the way, to <laughs> spend your time reading those things. That's good. I hope you like them. I uh, did, anyway, very I much. I able to quote from them. I'm surprised myself. <laughs> Perennial source of wisdom. Um, you know, I, I spoke with Yuval Levin a few weeks ago, and we, uh, we talked about how our obsession with avoiding death leads us to violate ethical principles because right. we, we see avoiding death as an emergency. Thus, we can do whatever it takes to avoid it. And the issue of physician-assisted suicide, it seems to me to be kind of the opposite of that. As you wrote, that our pursuits of physician-assisted suicide are signposts of our own culture of death. How did we get to a place in our medical and scientific culture where we're at once willing to do anything to avoid death uh, and will violate any ethical principle to avoid death? But then we also pursue death as a means of dealing with refractory depression or debilitating disease. Well, I, with you, uh, Aaron, am mystified that these two polar opposites seem to have uh, play with certain uh, communities within within medicine as well as in the public. And um, I uh, am mystified uh, and can't give you a particular answer, except that the preoccupation with death uh, seems to be uh, our major, uh, a major uh, enterprise right now, more, almost more than a interest in how to live a good life and, uh, and uh, flourish within it. Uh, I'm running a department now, or a, a little element within my department called uh, the, the Center for Human Flourishing. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it seems to me that that's what doctors should be interested in, uh, 
uh, not in the interminable life, but uh, you know, how with the life you have, can you flourish? And you know, many of the people when we first uh, set this up thought this was some kind of religious idea. <laughs> you know, he said, oh, that McHugh, you know, you know where he comes from. Uh, uh, he's those Jewish and Christian guys that uh, thinks the Bible has something to say. Uh, and I didn't think that that was what I was doing at all. I, I, I can tell you when I'm doing that, but I wasn't doing that. Uh, I uh, just thought, you know, that after you help a patient through a disorder or a disease, that maybe the next step you should do is how them make him flourish to meet all his, all his promises, that that might be, that might be a doctor's thing. And uh, it, it, it's taken a while, but I think it's catching on now. And that's my answer to the, um, those people that worry about death on both sides. I say, well, how, let's once again, focus on what life is about and see if we can make whatever life we have flourish for it rather than simply stagnate, uh, uh, hold on and all of that. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know the answer to your questions, but I, this is my response to the events, which I agree with. Uh, Let's talk about flourishing rather than about dying for a while, okay? Um, we can, because we can cure so much and we can do so much. And after we've done, how do we make me so that the patients don't fall back into the problem? And particularly into psychological problems like addiction and things of that sort, or depression and things. So <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have not answered your question, but I have offered a rebuttal. There you go, or a, a, a treatment to the problem. Wonderful. Think flourishing. Think flourishing. What it is? How do you practice to be a better violinist? But uh, uh, you know, and uh, how do you get to be a better doctor? How do you better be a better father and all of that? And uh, have some fun. That's what medicine should should bring to you. It should bring to you the idea that not only are we going to be able to uh, live a bit longer, but during that time we're going to have some fun and we're going to really uh, see. Uh, the kinds of gifts that we were given to begin with and see if they don't uh, multiply and multiply many times over and uh, see what happens. Wonderful. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing with that center? Yes. Well, uh, um, <laughs> our major work right now is to start talking to folk um, and ourselves and uh, related into the public, public health sphere with uh, what uh, ultimately it means uh, to uh, have what used to be called human hygiene, you know, um, and which now uh, involves in physical medicine, the idea of, of, of uh, how to avoid illness and to um, maintain hygiene means uh, the avoidance of illness and the pre preservation of physical health uh, and mental hygiene. Uh, would mean not only to stay mentally help, but uh, how you might prosper. And uh, so we're, we're talking about aspects of things in human lives, uh, which, I, which we believe uh, relate. And if encouraged participation uh, will lead human beings to meet their potential. And we think they come in four big important things. The first one being family, you know, the family and the family life and the importance of the family life in uh, raising uh, people and uh, uh, devoting themselves to each other uh, to find a way. The second area is education and uh, 
and education's opportunities to uh, open the world to you. Uh, the third um, uh, area is uh, the area of, of uh, really of community that uh, uh, opens uh, us up often, often in, in terms related to a community of others who see the world the way we do. Uh, and finally, the area of work. Work is not simply an area in which we uh, support ourselves, but in which we relate to one another and learn from each other in the process. As every doctor knows who's been a wonderful, in, has been an intern, how much he's learned from his fellow interns uh, and from which people depend. So we start emphasizing and start looking at what can we do to um, help people, given individual, to strengthen the realms of family, uh, education, work, and community in which they uh, find themselves and which they have never thought of as places where their life uh, is enriched and where they themselves as individuals can flourish. Um, we're, 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 you know, behind the wheel at the Harvard School of Public Health has a wonderful program uh, of, of scientific study in this area showing how people do do better when they have, for example, uh, a commitment to um, often to religious life or something of that sort. It seems to help them. Uh, he also talks about the issue of, you know, family life and the importance of uh, uh, parental commitment to each other and to the children and um, and things of this sort. And uh, uh, I think I think opening opening the doors for this. Uh, I, uh, colleague Meg Chisholm has a little book that's about to appear on human flourishing, and, and you might like to read it when it comes out. Um, I think it's a brilliant one. And by the way, a forward by Cal Ripken, just to tell you somebody who learned how to flourish uh, on the on, on play. Is that an answer? Did you hear that? That's perfect. Yes. On that note, Dr. McHugh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for inviting me to talk about this. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn about our programs, events, podcasts, and more.